Well, hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's so, I'm really glad that you're here. Glad if you're watching online that you're with us as well. Um, if we've not met before, my name is John. I get to serve as a lead pastor here at Center. And uh, it's, it's a great day, and not because there's a football game happening later, but because it's Sunday. Like, we just get to be together. Uh, anyone have any, like, really big passionate pleas about tonight? Anyone really, really care? Like, a ton? You just care? Okay, perfectly. So we're all on the same page. I could care less. Uh, but here, here we are. It's something worth celebrating, I guess, if you're really into it for the few of you that are. Uh, someone once commented that Super Bowl Sunday... Here, uh, here's a great definition if you're looking for one. 22 guys desperately in need of rest being watched by millions of people desperately in need of exercise. Okay, so that if you, as you go tonight or as you have your party at your house, just remember that. I will be thinking about that as I'm ingesting pretzel nuggets in multiple sauces just dipped around and just in my face. It would be great. Uh, unfortunately for us, like this week's been kind of tough. Like I, we're all kind of feeling under the weather, and so I feel a little bit more like deep tone than I normally do, but don't worry, I'm overflowing with DayQuil, uh, negative COVID tests abounding, like I just just don't feel that great, but I'm really excited to be here, and I'm so, I just want to say before we jump into the sermon too, like that to me, what we just did is so important, and I, I thank you, Blake, for just that reminder again and again, like for me, even on days where I'm like, man, I'm just not feeling it, when you get into a room of passionate people who are singing and worshiping and lifting up Jesus' name and reminding ourselves of how important it is to be connected to our, our Heavenly Father, man, it just changes it for me. So I, I already have more energy than I had about 30 minutes ago uh, because I just need that. My soul needs that. Now, some of you, uh, she's not here. She's taking care of a sick baby. My wife, Lindsay, and I have been married for a little over eight years. And uh, eight years, probably the best eight years of my life so far. This is us, like one of the first, our freshman year in college. Shortly after we had met, and this was visiting her family for the first time, uh, she says we don't look that different. I think she doesn't look that different, okay? I think I look a lot different. Uh, I've only gotten better looking is what I mean. Like I've matured like a fine wine over the last couple years. Uh, but she looks about the same. So what's funny is because when we both came to college, we both had significant others back home. So I had a significant other who lived here in Grand Rapids. She had one in New Jersey where she was from. And so for us, uh, distance and time away did not make the heart grow fonder. In fact, when I met Lindsay, I was like, I think I need to marry this woman. Like, I think she is going to be my wife. She doesn't know that, but I know that, and I really would like that to happen, God. If you'll let that happen, I'd love to make it happen. And so uh, we kind of started hanging out a little bit, but it, there came to be this kind of decision point. Every relationship has this, right? Especially when you each have a significant other back home. It was like, all right, is this for real or is this just convenient, right? Are we just like in the same classes and same chapels and all these kind of things where it just feels normal to be together or is there something more to this? And so I took her to Tim Hortons, which is the best place to have the define the relationship apparently in Canada. That's the only option. So we went to Tim Hortons. We walked down and we started to talk about it. And a couple of Tim Hortons trips later, we ended up both deciding, okay, it's time. We need to break up with these other people if we're going to actually pursue this relationship, which you're all judging me, but you would totally do it, okay? If it was Lindsay, you would all do this too, okay? Maybe you did this. I don't know. So don't judge me. But we were there, and we had this moment. So for me, it was like quick. I, I think I maybe sent an email. Like that's how classy I was. Yeah, exactly. So sent, send the email, and I was like, okay, I'm good, Lindsay. Now you got to do your thing, okay? <laughs> yeah, and she... 
she was much more respectful of her uh, significant other. And so she said, I'm going to call him tonight. I've got, I've got a Skype call scheduled. We're going to set up a time on Skype, and we're going to have this face-to-face as much as possible, 13 hours away, conversation. I said, okay, great. You're a better person than me, but, but just make sure, like, when he's on the other side of the call and he's crying and he's saying, no, don't do this, like, let's say together, that you don't change your mind. Okay, like just make sure you're locked in. And so conveniently, it's around eight o'clock and I found myself walking through her dorm parking lot. Just, I don't know how I ended up there. I don't know. She had a garden level apartment. I don't know like how I put all the dots together at just the right time. But I see her kind of like, I'm like kind of being creepy, like looking through the bushes and I see her on Skype with this guy. And so I'm watching and I'm seeing tears. I mean, this guy is, weeping on the other side of the call. I can't tell because I only see the back of her head what's happening with her, okay? And so uh, come to find out, like she was kind of emotional about it too. And I said, perfect. Like I knew it stuck then. I knew when there was like emotions that, that it would maybe stick. And she said, are you admitting that you just watched me break up with my boyfriend back home? I said, Absolutely. That's exactly what I was doing. It was 8 p.m. and I knew I was supposed to be there. And thank God that didn't ever happen and didn't come back together. Like I'm glad that relationship broke off once or fall. I am better for it. I would say that if you know, Lindsay, you are better for it. And uh, it's funny because today is obviously Super Bowl. And tomorrow, any guesses what tomorrow is? If you're Okay, anniversary? No, it's actually Valentine's Day, which is everybody's anniversary, okay? That's how we all treat it, is, is an anniversary. So if you're a guy and you're clueless, you have 24 hours to make something happen, all right? So I'm just giving you a heads up. If you have a significant other, don't be like me and do something nice. So, but what's wild is Valentine's, just like Christmas, just like Easter, can bring up some real relational hurt. Like some of you, this Valentine's Day will be the best one you've ever had, and some of you, this will be one of the worst ones you've ever had because the, the feelings and the attachment and the relationships that may be there or maybe not there can be really damaging. And when you have broken relationships in your life, it has a way of trickling in everything else. Like, yeah, you may go to work, but if your relationships are broken at home, that's all you think about. Yeah, you may go to school, but if all you can think about is that conversation with your dad or, or that moment with your sister, it doesn't really matter. Like it starts to trickle into everything else because if you look at the very beginning of the scripture story, we were created for whole and harmonious relationships, not just with God, but with others. Like for you and I to live at peace with one another, that really at the very beginning of the story was the goal. It was Adam and Eve and God walking in communion and community with each other in the garden. And so we're asking the question this month, what went wrong then? If we were created for that design, what happened? Well, Adam and Eve, as we kind of studied the last couple weeks, made this sinful, independent decision to take wisdom away from God and into their own hands and ends up bringing sin or this broken system into the world, this warped way of living and thinking that's counterintuitive to having the image of God imprinted on our lives. And so sin enters the world. This curse enters the world. And then you skip ahead. You see, okay, well, maybe as they had kids, it got better. What doesn't get better? Their kids end up killing one another. Like it gets really, really worse. And you can see all throughout the Old Testament, moment by moment by moment, a relationship's falling apart and breaking down. And it's not God's design. 
So God sets up this people. He sets up Israel, this nation that he would have set apart that would not only reveal like what happens when you follow Yahweh, but it also would be a blessing to them. Like in their relationships, they would be blessed because they're a part of God's chosen people. They were built to be an alternative community, a community in which when someone sinned, there actually was a possibility at least of forgiveness, of wholeness, of reconciliation, because God in the scripture story, even at the very beginning, was always taking the first step towards forgiveness. He always was the initiator, uh, whether it's a sacrificial system, whether it was Noah and the ark, whether it was the cross later as Jesus comes and, and is the Messiah, the anointed one, whatever it is, God has always seen in the story taking the first steps of forgiveness. Forgiveness is never a purely human decision. It starts with him. And so I want to take you to a passage which I'm guaranteeing is not any of your life verse, and I'm pretty much sure none of you have this chapter memorized, okay? I know some of you may have read it recently, but probably not one you dwell on or have above your kitchen, uh, kitchen fridge. Like, we're going to Leviticus today, okay? So Leviticus 6 really is kind of the setup to the sacrificial system, but I want to take you somewhere that I think is really interesting, and it has so much to say about human relationships, like from the very beginning of the story, way before Jesus ever came, that God was initiating among his people. So if you have your scriptures uh, with you, uh, Leviticus 6, we're gonna start in verse one, and here's what we read. The Lord said to Moses, the leader of Israel at the time, if anyone sins, okay, so that's all of us, right? If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord, by, which is really important. Like I love circling words that are important in my Bible. That word is circled by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. A lot of ors there. Like they're covering a lot and and all of it has to do with relationships between People, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they've stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution or pay it back in full and add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So this offering, all throughout Leviticus, you read these different chapters outline different offerings for different sins and different things that happen in the, in the community. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest, kind of the spiritual leader at the time, will make atonement for them before the Lord. Atonement meaning kind of Uh, making things right between God and humanity, making atonement for them before the Lord, and they'll be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. All right, so there's a lot there. There's multiple offenses that were possible between God and between one another, like in relationships. So if your tent's next to my tent, I give you something, I say, hey, I'm gonna be gone for the week. Can Can you watch over my camels or whatever it is? You fail to do that, my camel dies, my camel gets sick. Then there's this whole guilt offering system that we just read. It goes back and forth between people. What I think is really important, and I think it's so easy to read stuff like this and miss it, is that deception or lying to neighbors is actually equated to acting unfaithfully against the Lord. Did you catch this? 
right at the very beginning. So if I deceive you or I lie or I abuse your property or abuse uh, something that you've given to me to take care of, it's viewed in, in the scripture as being equal to offending and, and doing something against God's name himself, his self. And you see this throughout the whole Old Testament, right? Sin over and over again in these relational systems, it doesn't just break our hearts. It doesn't just hurt us. What ends up happening is when, because of sin and the brokenness that it brings into the, all of our human interaction, it actually breaks God's heart too. Like when, when you have a, a heated, tense argument where you say things you wish you hadn't said, that, that's not just between you and your friend or you and your spouse. It actually ends up breaking God's heart too. When you say that thing to your kid because they're late for school again, and again, and again, and they're doing things you're asking them not to do. When you say that thing and there's this kind of rift in the relationship, that doesn't just become part of you and their relationship. It actually has a way of, of bleeding into our spiritual lives as well. That's why Jewish people for so long, I mean, you can read all the Old Testament, the belief was that people were not truly forgiven. People could not experience forgiveness on earth until the Lord came back, whatever that looked like for them, on judgment day. That was the moment things were being forgiven. But if you scan ahead, I wanna take you to one more passage, then we're gonna talk about what this means for us, to Romans five. In Romans five, verse nine, listen to what Paul writes. He's writing to the persecuted Christians in, in the area of Rome, and this is what he writes. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled or forgiven is, is behind that. We're forgiven, we're reconciled to him through the death of his son, talking about Jesus, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through this life? He's not just talking about the time to come. He's talking about you and I, our present reality being forgiven by God and being able to extend forgiveness to other people. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, in our world, it's incredibly easy to forget forgiveness, but for Jesus followers, our life is fueled by forgiveness. Like at the end of the day, at the very core of your relationship with your creator is forgiveness. In any healthy relationship, honestly, doesn't, it's the, if you're looking at a good marriage, you don't track how many times you fought, how many times you said, said things you didn't mean, how many said, times you did things you wish you hadn't done. You track how many times did you forgive, even when those took place. Because none of us is exempt from doing things that we wish we had not done. This week, John Gorbett did things he wished he had not done. And the right response is not to track those and say, that's how he is. It is to track how many times was I willing to not only receive God's forgiveness, but to extend it to other people or to ask for it from other people. It's easy to forget forgiveness. We try so many different ways. Like here are a few examples. With your ex, could be ex-wife, ex-spouse, ex-boyfriend, girlfriend. Like there's, there's problems that are obviously arising, especially when it comes to kids and custody and all the challenges of that. And we try to get to solutions in like a thousand different ways and we forget forgiveness. 
we decide we're going to tackle it through the legal system or through passive aggression or through multiple texts or through getting other family members on our side, when the, the key actually may be not sugarcoating or overlooking the problem, but saying maybe the key, the solution is actually forgiveness. I thought about this with my, uh, I had great professors in college. I had some not so great. And I remember just having like this bitterness when I would get a really bad grade or I'd receive what I felt like was unfair criticism about a project. The key there is not just to be more bitter and to resent them and to talk smack about them at the lunch table. The key, the solution actually could be forgiveness. If you have an absent parent, someone who you wish was present in your world, Somebody who wished you were, they were around to meet the grandkids. The, the key may not be trying to fix all their behaviors or trying to make them into a person or not. The solution actually may be forgiveness. Does this apply then to the coworker who lied and threw you under the bus, created a bunch of havoc in your work world, and now you're in this scenario, which is really, really tough, and it's difficult, and you wish you weren't there? Is the key then to talk bad about them and kind of get revenge and go back towards them? Or is the key actually forgiveness? See, there's really two objections any of us have. Like if you and I all took the time to sit down and take spiritual inventory of our lives, there's really two objections we have, two reasons we do not forgive other people. It boils down to two. And the first one is personally, we don't feel forgiven. And so we don't forgive other people. We don't think that we're worthy. We don't think that we have earned it. We don't think that we've arrived spiritually. And so we just never in our innermost place feel like we're forgiven. And some of us, we don't feel forgiven because we don't think we need it, which is just pride. We don't, we don't think we're actually in need of it. We're a good person. We go to church enough. We serve enough. We give enough. We don't really need to ask God for his forgiveness or well, the second part of that is often we just feel too ashamed. We feel too broken, too messed up, too imperfect. And so we decide that when we talk about forgiveness or when we even read passages like Romans 5, it applies to everyone else except you and me. Or it applies to them, but not, but not for me. But the second objection is much more dangerous. See, when you don't feel forgiven, uh, what ends up happening is you, you decide in your mind, there's other people who don't deserve forgiveness either. And, and it's so easy. Culturally, you're seeing this play out every single day. You can't scroll through Facebook without finding examples after example of this. There's certain people who don't deserve forgiveness. They have done too much. They have said too much. They have not done enough or not said enough. And we decide and we go through our list of people and say, Deserving, not deserving, deserving, not deserving. You do this in family. We do this in just culture in general. Uh, there's like 15 good tangents right here about cancel culture in our world, right? I'm not going to go into any of them. But certain people, we decide in our minds, is a main objection we have, don't deserve forgiveness. And when you don't feel forgiven, which is really what, what struggles with like the older brother, remember Luke 15, right? Jesus' parable, he shares about a prodigal son who goes away, blows all of his dad's money. He comes back eventually and God receives him or the father in the story receives him back and the son experiences forgiveness. But the older brother doesn't, doesn't think he needs to be forgiven for anything. See, one is lost in their badness and the older brother's lost in his goodness, but they both are lost. They both need 
forgiveness. Some of us struggle with that older brother symptom that happens. But I want to talk about deserving forgiveness for a moment. Like I stumbled across something that literally stopped me in my tracks, and I don't know exactly why it hit me so hard until I reflected on it later, but I was reading this article. It was was kind of chronicling an abuse scandal at a university in New York, and there was a Times article written about this abuse and kind of documenting some of the stories and some of the, the reflection on those stories, but there was a comment underneath the article that, that made me kind of pause for a moment. This is what this woman wrote. She said, the notion that the victims of crime, oppression, and sexual assault must forgive their oppressors piles more oppression and harshness on the victim. Insisting that she forgive plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. Forgiveness is overrated. It heals neither the body or mind. Let this criminal, referring to the scandal, ask his gods if there be any for forgiveness. Instead of talking about victims must forgive, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of the criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. Now, it's easy to read that and to judge the person, but we often get trapped into thinking that exact same way. Now, we may not say that, we may not post that, but in our minds, there is categories of people who deserve forgiveness and categories of people who do not, which is why the gospel is a massive offense to all of us. (laughs) Because what the gospel does is put all of us in the category of people not worthy of forgiveness. And what the gospel does is show that all the people that you wouldn't put in the category of forgiveness are the exact people Jesus died for. That still messes with me 12 years later of following Jesus. I don't know why that is. I don't know how that works together. And I don't think what, what Jesus is saying or what Paul's writing about Jesus in Romans 5 or even this kind of clue towards forgiveness here in Leviticus 6 is saying that we should just forgive and forget, right? Just pretend it didn't happen. When you forgive, you're automatically just kind of neglecting all the hurt, all the trauma, all the scandal, all the injustice. I I don't think that's what's happening. I think what happens when we forgive is we acknowledge all of that and say, in spite of all this nasty, broken sin, I am choosing to forgive. I'm choosing to mirror my maker by forgiving and by setting aside the way I think life should be and the way I think justice should be served. One of the most powerful stories in our world of this, you can track multiple times, multiple places in their history, but it's in Southern Africa. Desmond Tutu, who at the time was was arrested and multiple times harassed, but he writes this. He said, without forgiveness for South Africa, there's no future. Unless we can learn to forgive blacks and whites together, there is no future on both sides. It takes humility. It takes a willingness. It takes a laying aside of the way we think life should be. But he said, and it's so powerful coming from his voice, without forgiveness, friends, there is no future. Quick sidebar on American life right now, I think that's still true. Without forgiveness, there is no future. If you, if you want to see America be the country you wish it would be or see your community be the community you wish it would be or see your home as the home you wish it would be, your marriage, your, your parenting, without forgiveness, there's no future. Because without forgiveness, we will constantly live outside of the boundary, outside of the design for us. For Jesus followers, friends, our life is fueled by forgiveness. 
I remember I saw a couple years ago, this is 2006, and I recently re-saw it in, in uh, some online feed that I was scrolling through, is a story of Nickel Mine School. Some of you may remember this. October 2006, Nickel Mine School was this Amish schoolroom, one, one kind of one-room schoolhouse, that in the middle of an afternoon, Charles Roberts IV comes in with an automatic rifle and kills five of the girls and critically wounded five more. And the story blew up. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? It's how did this happen in this community? What, what was he thinking? He eventually kills himself later in the day. Like, what, what is happening? Like, it's a jarring, emotional story. And now I have a daughter, so I put myself in the scenario of what, what if I got the other, what if I'm on the other end of that call? And, and, and truthfully, if I'm on the other, other end of the call, finding out that that happened, I would be immediately rushing to action. How do, we, how do we nail this guy? How do we destroy his name? How do we make sure his family pays for it? How do we make sure this never happens again? How do we make sure that our community is protected for the future? I would be jumping immediately to action. And you think if you're the Amish elders watching this scene unfold, that's what they would do, right? But that's not exactly what the Amish elders do. In fact, in the book Amish Grace, he chronicles this story of one of the elderly Amish men who had a grandchild in the school. He ends up going to Charles Roberts IV's parents' house, who lived just a few miles away. And the Roberts were, co were consistently helping the Amish taxi them around. They could drive. The Amish chose not to drive. And so when they had a long distance, the Roberts family would take them around. So they knew these people. They knew Charles, the killer. And so this elderly man goes up to the front door of the Roberts' house. And you could probably, I mean, if you're in the scenario, you get this. You could probably hear the sobbing and the, the moan, the groaning and the mourning of Charles Roberts' parents, not only because they've lost their son, but because of what their son, son did in their own neighborhood. So this elderly man opens the door and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't go after them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't shame them. What he does is extend his arms open and Charles Roberts' dad falls into them. The journalist said they hugged for an hour. See, friends, forgiveness is not about who deserves it. It's not about do we feel like forgiving. It is how we are hardwired as Jesus' people. It's how we're hardwired. And over and over again, they'd, they would interview these Amish families who had done similar acts to this elderly man over and over again, ask why, all these secular journalists, why did you do that? Like, why aren't you focused on action? Why aren't you focused on making sure this doesn't happen again? And they said, doesn't, what else would you, what else would we do? Like, we believe the scriptures. We believe that, that God is who he said he is. And so we forgive and you may ridicule that. You may be embarrassed by the fact that we do that, but that's how we are wired. I think the reason that story hits me is that that's what Jesus' disposition and attitude is towards me. That's his attitude and his, his perspective towards you. And you say, I didn't shoot up a schoolhouse. I didn't do this. But, but any time we live outside of God's good design for us. We are sinners in need of a savior. And what Jesus does by hanging on a cross and sacrificing himself for us is he shows us the ultimate act 
of justice and mercy, somehow in a mysterious way mingling with one another. And the result is you and I are forgiven for what we have done and what we've yet to do. And to me, this is a story of nickel mines. This is a story of scripture. This is our story. See, what really hits me is that Jesus died for the students who were lost and for the killer. What hits me is that Jesus died for those who know they need forgiveness and for those who think, no, 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 no. Jesus, I know you're offer. I'm actually exempt from that. Look at my behavior. Look at my job stats. Look at my kids. He, he sets all of that to the side. Jesus died for those who embrace that forgiveness and those who don't think they need it. Can I ask you the tough question that maybe you don't want to think about tonight while you're shoving nachos down your face? Like, can I ask you the question, who do you need to forgive? Maybe it's someone who's not here. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's someone that you're going home to in a couple hours. Maybe it's someone you'll see tonight. Maybe it's someone who doesn't even live anywhere near here. You need to pick up the phone. And who do you need to forgive? Because all of us, if we're honest, we have the desire and the bent towards unforgiveness in our lives. And what happens is Jesus says, in the most haunting words, maybe in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that Jesus says, if you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. I don't think that's just arbitrary and he's making up more rules. I think what Jesus is saying there is if you fail to forgive other people, at the end of the day, you have misunderstood how you were designed. You've misunderstood the, the way the gospel actually works and, and the gospel works through forgiveness. And so what I want to do is invite the band up. We're gonna, we're gonna worship, we're gonna respond. But what I wanted to give you is some space to process that question because it's not a question we think about every day. It's not a question that we wrestle with very well. And maybe it's because you don't feel forgiven or maybe it's because you just don't think there are people in your life who are worthy of that same forgiveness. I don't know where you're at, but here's what I know. I'm trusting, just like for me in my world, there's people that I need to work at forgiving right now. And there are people who were not on my radar about a week ago, if I can say that. There are people I'm like, do I really need to forgive that person? They didn't even do anything to me, but it was a situation, it was a comment, it was a conversation that has worked hurt in my world and I need to choose to forgive. So I wanna create some space for that. And then we're gonna worship and we're gonna sing together. So would you pray with me? God, I thank you just as I look around this room for those who are joining at home right now. I thank you for the beauty of grace and the reality that whether or not we accept it, whether or not we embrace it, you offer it. And so I thank you that we don't have to be caught in the cycle of bitterness, the cycle of resentment, the cycle of unforgiveness. But today you give us a fresh chance to come before you and say, God, there's someone I need to forgive. And I need your courage, I need your boldness, I need your uh, holy motivation to even have those conversations. And maybe we sit here today too, and it's just we know that we feel too ashamed, too embarrassed, too dirty, too sinful, too messed up to receive your forgiveness. God, I pray today as we sing, as we worship, as we, as we move from this time, that you actually would make us tangibly aware of the forgiveness you have for us and how you view us. 
So God, we surrender uh, just the people, we surrender the situations, we surrender the hurts. And we're asking God today that you would meet us again, that you'd give us a fresh moment with you that, that allows us to, to live a different life, to pursue uh, people differently, to love those who, who maybe the relationship for a long time has been broken. We give it to you and surrender all of it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to give you some time. I invite you to stand up with me. We're going to worship together. We're going to sing together. But I want you to just wrestle. Maybe that, that God is still doing that stuff in your life. I would say don't just move on. Don't just sing. Don't just skip through and think about the rest of your day. But allow this to be a moment between you and him. So let's worship God together.